It's the new year, right? It's the time of resolutions. And whatever you may feel about resolutions, there's something to be said about uh, humanity's desire for change. We want it. We want the it that will help us change, the it that will help us resolve uh, to bridge the gap between how things are and how we would like things to be. We want resolution. We want the power of a teenage pep rally within our souls. Do you guys watch Friday Night Lights? Do you know the team's mantra? Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Let's try that. Clear eyes, full hearts. One more time. Clear eyes, full hearts. Feels good, right? Like, we love that. Like, keep, keep the vision in sight. Have ambition in your hearts and the win. The win man is within reach. We want that. We don't want the more honest, cloudy eyes, fickle hearts, can't know for certain how things will go. Not as encouraging, is it? A bit more honest, though. I think that's why so many of us are disillusioned when it comes to resolutions. We know that change takes a whole lot more than pep rallies and good vision statements. Resolutions miss it. If anything, resolutions, saying them over and over just breeds discontentment because we become more aware of what we want to change and more aware of our ability not to be able to bring it about. For example, we have a great vision for St. Peter's Fireside. We want to join God in the renewal of Vancouver. We want to see spiritual, social, and cultural renewal through communities transformed by the gospel all to God's glory. I love our vision statement. I'm behind it with all I am, but saying it alone does nothing. I could get all of you to memorize it and be able to say it with me. It does nothing. It's just a vision statement. What matters more, what matters infinitely more, is faithfulness. That's the it that we're all searching for. How do we become faithful to ourselves? Faithful to the goals that we set for ourselves. Faithful to the values that we want in our lives. More importantly, how do we become faithful to God? If I could see then one thing deepen in our community over the next year, it would be this, faithfulness. Faithfulness to go wherever it is that God would have us go. Faithfulness to, to do whatever it is God would have us do. Faithfulness to be whoever it is that God would call us to be. Because if we're faithful to the God who is first faithful to us, the vision of our community will be a byproduct. You may notice that I pray the same prayer before every sermon I preach. Lord, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our minds that we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts that we not grow cold, and apply it to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. It's a prayer for faithfulness. And I don't just pray this for myself, although I hope and and pray that God will answer that prayer in my life. I pray it for each of you. I pray it for all of us. I, I want this prayer to be answered in our community. I want our community to be faithful. But you need to know, this prayer that I pray, I did not write it. I did not pen it. I actually uh, was taught it by a man named Isaac Hunter. He was a friend. Uh, he, he was a mentor to me. Uh, the first time I heard this prayer was 2006. I was at Summit Church in Orlando, Florida. Isaac was preaching, and I remember hearing that prayer. I don't even remember the sermon, and I was thinking, I want to pray that prayer. And so I have, and, and as I learned to preach, I always pray that prayer before every single sermon I've ever preached. And I will continue to pray that prayer, but you need to know it has not been easy to pray over the past year, and it will not be easy to pray uh, in the years to come. A little over a year ago, uh, Isaac resigned from 
Summit Church, where he was senior pastor of the church that I worked at in Florida, uh, citing moral failure. And it was devastating to the community. Uh, three weeks ago, Isaac took his life. He committed suicide. And none of us saw that coming. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, this, he's a friend, you know. And if I'm honest with you, I, I've been dreading praying this prayer. I've, I've been dreading getting into the pulpit. Because I find the things I do, the things I say, are so deeply impacted by, by this man's ministry on my life. St. Peter's fireside is so shaped by Isaac Hunter, you guys will never know the extent to which he has influenced this community, and you'll never meet him. And, and I want to thank many of you. Like many of you know what Julia and I have been going through over the Christmas holidays. You've been telling us, you're praying for us, you've been checking in, and, and, and I appreciate that. I want to thank you for your prayers. And I can't speculate about what happened to Isaac's mind and heart and his feet. I can't speculate about that. Um, All I know is that the prayer he taught me to pray, I I believe he would want me to keep praying it. And in many regards, I feel more urgency um, to see it answered. Because often our minds, our heart, our feet, um, they take us to places we never thought we would go. The problem is that our minds do grow shallow. Our hearts do grow cold. Our feet do become stagnant, or they even walk in the wrong direction altogether. So when I'm thinking about 2014, I'm not thinking about our vision. I'm not thinking about all the dreams that have led me and us to this moment. I'm not thinking about what could be. I am so desperately aware that we need God to answer this prayer, that we need God to take his word and apply it to our community, that we might be faithful in this moment and each moment moving forward. So this morning, I want to talk about faithfulness. And I want to do it in the context of of looking at this prayer for faithfulness. So first, we're going to look at the Word of God. What is the Word? Second, we're going to look at the challenge of our minds, hearts, and feet, because they need the Word applied. So obviously, there's an issue going on there. And then finally, we're going to take a, a look at what the Word applied and what faithfulness actually looks like. So the word, the issue of our hearts, minds, and feet, and what faithfulness actually looks like. The prophet Ezekiel is a great place. If we want to learn about faithfulness, Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel. Um, Open your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Uh, We'll start in verse 30. It'll also be up on the screen. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come, And hear the word that comes from the Lord. We're entering into a moment where God is speaking to Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a faithful prophet. He would hear a word from God and then he would speak that word to the nation of Israel. And often he was calling them back to faithfulness to God. And and he would even say, this is about to happen and it would happen. So now more than halfway through his public ministry, people are actually starting to pay attention. They're starting to gather. They want to say, what's this word? Let's go hear this word. When you hear the phrase, the word of the Lord, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? The Bible, right? Word of the Lord. We think Bible. And that's true. This is the word of the Lord. But when we look in the Bible, when you look at the scriptures, the word of the Lord is is a little more vast than just the written word. 
the word of the Lord most commonly in the scriptures is God speaking directly to a person. God speaks. And in turn, what God says and what God does often gets written down. So the Bible is more accurately the written word. Moses writes down the laws of God. Uh, David writes down God-inspired prayers. Jeremiah has a disciple who writes down his prophecies. Uh, Luke writes down the gospel and a history of the church. Uh, Paul, Peter, John, they write letters of what they've heard and what they've seen. Now, I can belabor the point, but God speaks, God acts, and the God inspires the community to write down the words. So the scriptures are actually the written word. But the word is more than just a collection of what God has said and done. Jesus himself is called the word. In the first chapter of John's gospel, he says the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. The word became one of us. God dwelt with us in the person of Jesus, which means if you want to hear God, if you want to hear his voice, if you want to encounter God, it happens uh, by encountering the person of Jesus. And Jesus himself even taught that the long history of what God has said and done and what has been written down, it's all about him. And so when we pray, Lord, take your word and apply it, we're, we're declaring something. We're declaring that the Bible is more than dried ink on paper. We're saying that God breathed life into these written words so that through them we might expect to encounter the word made flesh, that through the scriptures we would actually encounter Jesus himself, and that God inspired the, per the Bible for this purpose, for us to encounter Jesus. And that's why we preach out of the Bible on Sundays. That's why we'll preach out of books of the Bible, because it's not just a book. It's a, it's a book that is inspired to bring us to an authentic, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, you see, it's not just a spiritual guide. It's not just a book with wisdom in it. God breathes life into it, and in the hands of the Holy Spirit, he uses it to challenge us and to transform us and to change us, but ultimately by leading us time and time again to Jesus. And so I'm belaboring this point to say this. There is simply no way we can be faithful to God without his word. We can't envision what faithfulness looks like if we don't know what God's asking us to do. We can't learn to hear what the sound of Jesus' voice is like if we don't know how he's already spoken. We can't dare do the things that God asks us to do if we're not dependent on his spirit to empower us to do the things. Through and through, we need the spirit to breathe life into the scriptures so that the written word becomes the living word within us. And this is what God does. The reformer Martin Luther, he, he wrote, the Bible is alive. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. I love this. God is a God who wants to lay a hold of us with his hands. He runs after us. He, he wants to grab a hold of our minds and our hearts and our feet. The question is, do we listen? Do we let God grab a hold of us through his word? A friend of mine, he's an atheist and, and very fun conversational partner, he said to me one day, you Christians, you think God wrote the Bible, right? So that's a crass way of saying it, but yes, that we believe God inspired the scriptures. 
he went on, he said, here's what I don't understand. I ask Christians all the time if they read their Bible and they often say no. Seriously? If I believe that I had a book written by God, I would read the stuffing out of that book. It's Christmas. This brings us back to Ezekiel. What keeps us, what keeps us from getting into the word of God so that it can lay a hold of us? The passage we're looking at in Ezekiel, it marks a transition in Ezekiel's prophetic career. People are starting to pay attention to him. They're reacting to seeing prophecies fulfilled, to see what he will say next. But they're not doing this with pure motives. They don't come to be transformed by the word. They come for the show. They don't come to find out what it means to be faithful to God. They come to be entertained. Look at verse 31 and 32. And they come to you as, my, as people come. They sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their game. Behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. God's people come to hear Ezekiel. They come to hear the word. But they don't really hear it. They gawk at it. With lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their hearts set on their own gain. What's that all about? It's a diagnosis of the fact that even the people of God have skewed desires. Desires that are turned inwards for one's own pleasure, for one's own status, for gain. So when we pray, Lord, take your word and apply it to our minds that they not grow shallow. Apply it to our hearts that they not grow cold. We're recognizing that our minds and our hearts have the propensity towards self-centeredness, to selfishness. And like the people of God uh, in Ezekiel, we tend to harden our hearts and not allow the word to interact with us. Our minds, they quickly settle for shallow things, for numbing entertainment, for half-truths that sound nice uh, but require minimal effort. Our hearts, they grow cold. Uh, homeless people on the street just become objects. Hurting people in our lives become burdens. What we really want with all our hearts and our minds is not God, but a word, uh, the world ordered around our comfort and success. We want it easy, enjoyable, and nice. That's what we really want. And what that shows us is that our hearts and minds are a mess. Because we want to do what we want. And when we encounter God speaking through his word, we have to come under an authority, and we don't like that. When I was in the sixth grade, I was a bit of a problem child. But what can you expect for a kid with a mullet? Right? Like you expect a kid with a mullet to be a problem child, and I was. I, I was in detention like almost every day, if not every other day. And I just had such a problem with authority because they were like, there are rules, man, that they were oppressing you. These are just systems of oppression. <laughs> and in the sixth grade, I even liked my teacher, Mr. Kushner. He was like the nicest guy. He had salt and pepper, like tight curly hair. He had a Big laugh. He was really loving. And I think he even liked me too, despite me being a problem child. And one thing I remember about Mr. Kushner, his car, his very nice car, he had a Pontiac Fiero. I think this was like the first car that had like the headlights that pop out and say hello from the hood. And 
to like a sixth grader, like this car is a big deal. I had no idea that this car had a reputation for the engine spontaneously catching on fire. Like to me, this was like primo car. And I remember that car. And eventually, Mr. Kushner realized like this system of detention is not working for Alistair, just having him sit in his desk, kill some time and go home. So he started introducing tasks. I get detention and say, okay, you need to clean the chalkboards. Okay, I like cleaning the chalkboards. So the next day, well, you need to you know, bang the chalkboard brushes and clean those. Great, this is fun, I'm getting dirty. Eventually, he was like, okay, I gotta find something that this kid doesn't like. So one day, he finally found my Achilles heel. He said, you're gonna go outside and pick up every piece of filthy trash that your filthy peers put out. I'm paraphrasing. You know, pick up the trash. I goes, no, that is wrong. You pay people to do that. You have people you hire to do that. that. You're abusing your power. I will not pick up the trash. And he said, well, you're not going home until you do it. And he's like, and I have it on good authority that your parents won't receive you until you do it. And so I said, all right, Mr. K, I'll pick up the trash. I'll pick up your trash. I'll pick up every single piece. And you know what I'm going to do with it? And he said, what? I said, I'll take that dirty, filthy trash and dump it all over your car. <laughs> and he picked up the phone and called my parents, and I got grounded. And I was their problem. And, you know, I turned out all right. Like, <laughs> authority, right? We, we, we have authority issues. We have, we have issues being told what to do. So I think even if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, what really bothers us about the Bible is its authority. It means if we read it, that it has the right to lay hold of us, to change us, to transform us. My little sixth grade heart and mind, it just gives a picture into how we really are still as adults. We want to live life our own way. We want to call the shots. We, we don't want an outside force dictating what we do because at the end of the day, we want autonomy. We want to be in control. Um, and I think we actually bring that posture towards the Word of God. We either avoid the Word of God altogether, uh, we either sit before the Word of God, we either stand above the Word of God, or we come under the Word of God. Let's look at all four of those. When we avoid the Word, you know, we, we might know about the Bible, but we just keep it out of sight. We, we construct systems and worldviews that make it okay and justify not reading the Scriptures. Maybe you're not a Christian, you say, well, how can I really trust that this book is even inspired? How can you prove that? Or you say, well, it's, it's just another book among you know, hundreds of religious texts. Why should I read it? Here's a question for you. Have you ever picked up a book and tried to read an like, read, uh, argument in favor of the Scripture's inspiration? Have you ever tried to find an answer to those questions? Or are you just deflecting so you don't actually have to deal with the issue of this book that millions of people around the world and throughout history claim to be inspired by God? Faithfulness will never come because you've locked away the word. But Christians, like, we avoid the, the Bible just as much. I, I, I'm trying not to rant about this, but I am so tired of, of meeting people who say, I don't need the Bible, I can go directly to Jesus. So, like, well, thank you for being the best prophet the world has ever known in 2,000 years. Like, th this is just not true. I, I'm not denying that we can hear from God, that we can be in tune with the Holy Spirit. But to know if we're having a credible and authentic encounter with God, if we're truly hearing his voice, we need to know how he's spoken. Faithfulness doesn't come because you end up just going out in the woods and, and, and going ski biking or whatever it is you do instead. Like, we avoid the word. 
when we, we sit before the word, right? Like we, we put it before us. We, we sit before the word. Um, we're like the people in Ezekiel. They're, they're sitting before Ezekiel, but they keep the word at arm's length. They come for the show. They want to be entertained. They want to be told good stories. They want jokes. Right? To them, hearing the word is about entertainment. And they, they might even challenge it. They might even talk about it afterwards. But God forbid that the word that is written and proclaimed actually become living in them. If the word challenges them too much, if it, if it has to become personal, they say, no, 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 I was, just, I was just going to listen. If we treat the word this way, if we, if we just sit before it, not letting it interact with our lives, faithfulness doesn't follow because we're never actually opening up ourselves to God's word. But then there's people, and this, I think, is the most common stance in our culture. They stand above the word. That just offended many of you, didn't it? You threw a Bible on the ground. But this is what we do with all our intellectual arguments. We say, look, we somehow, we now stand at a better vantage point in history. Uh, we know better than the Bible. And so the Bible needs to be refined and, and needs to accommodate our 21st century values and morals. Uh, so the parts of the scripture that don't line up with the things that I value, that society tells me to value, I just cut them out. Or more personally, you see something in the Bible that just challenges you, and so you cut it out. And when we do this, faithfulness doesn't follow because we're actually dictating what faithfulness looks like. We're not, we're not coming under the word. Which brings me to my last point. Like, if, if we come under the word, we recognize its authority. We recognize that we have to approach the Bible with a posture of humility, that we come to it with hearts that are prone uh, to reject it, minds that will want to bend it, and we come realizing that it's not the Bible that needs to change, but that it's us that needs to change. And I think it's that posture that opens us up to faithfulness. It's that posture that opens us up to truly hearing the word. But our minds and our hearts, they're not the sum of our being. We still have to deal with our feet. It's, as we'll see, it's nothing if we simply fill our minds and hearts with God's word if it doesn't lead to faithfulness. We have to address our feet. God says twice in Ezekiel, in verse 31 and 32, they hear what you say, but they will not do it. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. It means absolutely nothing to hear the word of God if it comes in one ear and out the other. They hear, like the people in Ezekiel, they hear and acquire information, but they fail to act upon it. James addresses this too. He writes in chapter 1, verse 22 of his letter, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearing and acquiring more information is not the point. It's not how we change. It's not how we become faithful. We can learn more and more about the Bible and realize that our knowledge only exceeds our obedience. And indeed, it even outweighs our obedience. And if we hear and we don't do it, James goes as far as to say that we're deceiving ourselves. Back to 11-year-old Alistair. I, I knew what I should do. I had the intellectual capacity to know right and wrong. If, like, I, I should be nice to kids during recess. Right? I shouldn't pick on the weaker ones. Um, I should brush my teeth, and I, I shouldn't take my sister's toothbrush and put it under my armpit, no matter how badly I want to do that. I should do the things that my parents tell me to do. Be a good boy. 
Francis Chan, he, he illustrates this beautifully. He says, look, if I, if I simply went to my parents and said, you, you said clean my room, um, and I just recited what they told me to do, having not done it, thinking they'd be impressed. Like, it'd be ludicrous. If I went in and said, Mom, I should clean my room. And she said, well, did you? And if I said, no, but I got a bunch of friends together, and we studied really hard what you said. We analyzed each word. I memorized it. I should clean my room. And guess what? I can say it to you in Greek. <laughs> my mom would say, well, I can say something in Greek, too, with an imperative. Go clean your room. James, he checks us. He knows that we are the type of people who think, I should care for the poor. And we feel like good people just for thinking that. That was a yummy thought. And then we do nothing with it. We have our slogans, phrases like, forgive others, 77 times 7. Love your enemies. And we love these phrases until we actually have to forgive someone or love our enemies. Uh, until we encounter the rapist or the molester or the, the terrorist, if we're going to be extreme. Until we have to apply that to the boss who continually uh, hurts us or the ex that, that keeps wounding us or whoever it is. James' point is that knowing that we should forgive others or love our enemies or take care of the poor isn't actually the same as forgiving someone or loving our enemies or actually caring for the poor. But we get all messed up when we start talking about getting our feet involved, when we start talking about doing the things God asks us to do. Because we're convinced that we're saved by faith alone. And this is true. So let me be clear. The stuff that we do, our good works, they can't put away our sins. They don't impress God. They certainly don't save us. But doing good works springs out of a true and lively faith. As James will go on to say in his letter, faith without works is dead. So how do you know if your faith in God is sincere? Well, are your feet following? You can be stumbling along the way to Jesus. That's okay. We're not talking about walking perfectly, but we are talking about walking consistently in the direction of Jesus. Faith then isn't solely about thinking the right things or doing the right things. Faith is more of a posture of openness towards God and a willingness to go wherever he asks and do whatever he asks and be whoever he asks. Faith is a yes before we know what is asked of us. Why? Because faith believes in the trustworthiness of the one who is calling us to be faithful and his ability to make us able. Which brings us to our last point. What does faithfulness actually look like? A faithfulness that involves our minds, hearts, and feet. What does that look like? Sometimes it means putting our feet in the right place and letting our hearts and minds follow. For example, the discipline of sitting down with our Bibles and coming to hear it preached, it's not always the most fun or easy thing to do. But it's that rhythm and consistency which gives way to the transformation of our hearts and minds over time. Giving is another example. Jesus teaches that where we put our treasure, our hearts will be. So we give, even when our hearts want to hoard and hold on to the money, uh, because we know that the, the, the time and consistency of the action will change our hearts. And your treasure might not be money. It might be your time. And so you give your time, even though you want to hold on to it, even though you'd rather watch the TV show at night, because you know that that action will, will change your heart over time. In the same way, we show kindness to that person we don't want to show kindness to because the act helps us get our hearts and minds in check. But we don't just act and ignore the fact that our hearts and minds are out of place. 
Sometimes we need to address our hearts to get our feet into the right place. You may have noticed that I haven't preached for the past few weeks because I found it that I, I needed to grieve well and to take some time uh, to work on my heart before getting my feet back in the right place. And now I'm in a place where I'm getting my feet in the right place, which is helping my heart follow. Sometimes you just need to go to counseling and, and begin a process of helping your heart heal because you've been wounded in such a way that you can't trust others or that you can't receive love from others, let alone uh, come under the idea that there is a God who loves you and who cares for you. You need to get your heart checked before your feet can follow. I want to be clear, there's no linear fashion about this. Sometimes we address our minds, sometimes we address our feet, sometimes we address our hearts. Uh, we're constantly, over and over, giving our, each part of ourselves to Jesus. But faithfulness fundamentally starts by hearing the word of God. And the posture by which we hear the word of God matters. We have to come under the word of God. We need to depend upon the spirit of God to empower the written word to become the living word within us. And when God does renew our minds and our hearts and our feet, we find that they're not shallow or cold or stagnant. What we find is that our minds start to delight in the truth of God that the scriptures actually become a joy. We find that our hearts become alive because God promises to fill our hearts with his love. We find that our feet walk faithfully in the path towards Jesus, even when it involves hardship and suffering, because we know that the outcome of the path is, is eternal life with God. We know that it is the glory of God. And so I don't want to downplay this at all. Our faithfulness matters. We need to take seriously the command in Scripture, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus' voice matters. And the reality is that most of us are not going to be hearing that voice audibly, but all of us can hear that voice within Scripture. Do you believe that? And do you open yourself up to hearing it in Scripture? Do you listen with a yes before you know what he asks of you? If we're going to be a faithful community, our only hope then is Jesus. That's what the written word points us to. And when we stumble along the way, when we fall short, when our feet fails us, our hope, our boast, our trust, our joy, it's not in our own faithfulness. It's in this trustworthy saying from 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. How did 11-year-old Alistair eventually become the 30-year-old not only respects authority, but delights in it? How did I become the type of person who uh, no longer resents what my parents ask of me, but delights in doing the things they ask of me, looks forward to doing the things for them? It's that my parents remained faithful to me. Even when I was a mess, even when I was the crazy kid with the mullet, they were faithful to me. I was re uh, refined by years of faithful love that didn't abandon me, even uh, though I was rebellious, even though I was a little crazy. Jesus is always more faithful to us than we are to him. Even when we fall short, even when we're overwhelmed by despair and our feet are stuck in the mire of disbelief or depression, Jesus remains faithful to us. And even though all of us have our different issues with authority, what we find is that Jesus uses his authority in such a compelling way. He doesn't lord it over us. Uh, actually, when we come under his authority, he says, I've set you free. You're free. You're free. You're free to, to do whatever you want. 
even if that means choosing to be unfaithful uh, to him. But ultimately, God frees us to show us what is truly good, to, to call us into a better future. And, and he calls us to live that out, but he remains faithful to us even when we uh, persistently turn the other way. And it's that sort of all-encompassing and powerful love, that sort of authority that, that serves us, that loves us, that lets us be free and remains faithful to us even when we're unfaithful. It's that sort of love that actually gives birth to a sincere desire to be faithful to God. So as we enter into this new year, let's commit as a community to be under the word of God in such a way that the spirit of God empowers us to actually do what we hear. Let's commit to seeing our lives look more like Jesus's life, to seeing our love look more like Jesus's love. Let's make this prayer for faithfulness the prayer of our community, the prayer of our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our minds that we not grow shallow, our hearts that we not grow cold, and to our feet that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.